0: Welcome to Crime Beyond Borders, a podcast series from the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. My name is Frank Müller. I'm an urban geographer at the University of Amsterdam and I hold a global fellowship within the Marie Curie program of the ERC. My work is primarily on organized crime as it shapes urban development in Latin American cities. And I particularly look at Rio de Janeiro and Medellin. In this episode, we'll be diving into a discussion about the papers that make up the GIAD special issue on illicities, City-Making and Organized Crime. With me, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Lirio Gutierrez Rivera, who is an associate professor at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia in Medellín. Lirio has worked on prisons in Central America and currently studies how violence affects women and women's organization in Medellín. And with us today is also Felipe Fernandez, who holds a PhD in social anthropology, Felipe works as a postdoctoral researcher at the International Graduate School Temporalities of Future at the Institute for Latin American Studies at Freie Universität Berlin. Felipe has worked on water infrastructure and governance in Buenaventura, Colombia. Then with us today is also Carolina Grillo. Um, She holds a PhD in Cultural Anthropology and she works as an assistant professor at the Department of Social Sciences at the Fluminense Federal University in Niteroi and as an associate researcher at the Nucleus for the study of citizenship, conflict, and urban violence. She is working on crime violence, illegal markets, human rights, and social movements. So, lastly, Julien Wichels. Uh, Julien is a co-founder also of the Research network illicities, and she is co-editor with me of our special issue in GIED. So, Julian, would you would you please like to present yourself?
1: Yes, thank you, Frank. I'm Julian Bejos. I'm assistant professor of Latin American studies at the Center for Latin American Research and Documentation at the University of Amsterdam, and my research has mainly focused on imprisonment. But since the 2018 protests in Nicaragua, it has also shifted toward understanding political imprisonment and understanding mobilization of political materialities, as we like to call this in the special issue, which focuses on how, well, illicit city-making and organized crime.
0: Thank you, Julian. If you're interested on the different papers that make up this whole special issue, obviously, All papers are open access, they are all peer-reviewed, please check them out. Okay, so let us now move to more specific contexts and more specific cases. And as said in the beginning, we have three wonderful panelists with us here today. Julianne is here in the wonderful double role, not only as co-editor of this special issue, but also as a author. She has co-authored a paper together with Ricardo Diaz, who is also a PhD here at the University of Amsterdam. Julianne, would you like to briefly introduce us, take us into your paper? Let us know a little bit what it is about.
1: Yes, thank you, Frank. So... In our paper, Ricardo and I focus on the materialities of violence and care, or better said repression and care. And this is actually in large part due to his originally master's research looking into the materialities of care with Nicaraguan exiled protesters. So we combined that with my ongoing research with the family members of political prisoners and former political prisoners who also express very detailed accounts, of course, of what they are going through following the massive anti-government protests in Nicaragua in 2018. Um, So what we could see in in this Nicaraguan insurrectional city is how materialities become part of a political conflict and how they are also historically and symbolically relevant. So people don't just draw on any materiality, they draw on very specific materialities, like the bricks that you use to build barricades, yeah, that's basically what our paper goes into and with that kind of tries to unsettle perhaps also a little bit the the notion what we try to do also with the whole special issue right of organized crime as only like let's say formally recognized criminal actors but we also look at very closely this analogy that Charles Tilly makes indeed of looking at the state also as an organized criminal actor. So, let's say, in the way in which state crime then becomes an integral part of the cityscape. So kind of, and this might seem odd, right, to to move to Carolina now, because she's working on militias in Rio de Janeiro, but actually I think that there's a very interesting connection there between state politics, right, and organized crime in
2: the city. Maybe Carolina, you can tell us a little bit more about what you do in your paper. Thank you for your question, Julianne. Our work addresses the issue of armed control, of territorial control exerted by armed groups in Rio de Janeiro. It was only possible because at GENI, together with Fogo Cruzado, an institute, we built a database and mapped the armed groups in Rio de Janeiro because this information was not available for anyone. So from the map of armed groups, we were able to assess how much of the territory of the Rio de Janeiro city and the Rio de Janeiro metropolitan region is under control of organized crime? We prefer to say criminal groups or armed groups. And the, the most astonishing data is that militias they have become the most important group. They Half of the territory under control of armed groups is currently under control of militias, And these were groups... That were initially praised by political authorities in Brazil. And they are known because so many investigations, some concluded investigations, have resulted in the arrest of political representatives from the Rio de Janeiro State Assembly and the city council and the police. So militias are very intertwined with state actors. So it is a very considerable threat to democracy. But specifically in this paper, we address the issue of political favoring and the economical favoring to the expansion of militias. And we came to the conclusion that police repression is much lower in areas controlled by militias. All the state coercive apparatus is directed to the drug trafficking factions. And we have also concluded that uh, militias have benefited from many investments on city infrastructure. Militias have coordinated the work of urbanizing, expanding the city in the west zone of Rio de Janeiro. So there were so many public investments because of the Olympic Games and the World Cup. Much was invested in city infrastructure and it's a kind of favored Melicia's most important business, which is real estate markets. We noticed that the places where the construction business was more heated were the places under were the, the, the regions under control of militias. So while this is something that must be addressed collectively and through investigations and through public debate, because it represents a considerable threat to our democracy. And because the life of the urban poor is subject to overtaxation by these groups who are extorting not only the real estate businesses that we are addressing in the paper, but also all other businesses and public services from water supply, gas supply and uh, transportation. So all essential services are being overtaxated and administered by criminal armed groups responsible for such high homicide rates.
1: Thank you, Carolina, for this, this explanation. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the material implications of this intimate connection between militias and politics. Are there particular markets aside from the public services that you mentioned, particular construction markets that they're interested in? Because the expansion of an urban area of course requires a lot of, requires a lot of work and, and a lot of um, economic effort as well. Would you say that perhaps your paper looks more into the political and the economic ramifications? Are there any kind of very material ways in which this expresses itself?
2: Well, militias—they are racketeering groups. So they are basically selling protection. This is how they—they they began by extorting every single business in areas controlled by militias have to pay protection fees to these groups. No such thing used to happen in territories controlled by drug factions. Now, drug factions have began to. Overtaxate products and services in the areas they control too, because they have learned it from militias. But the protection markets are very important, and this is how they can control all other markets, even the legal ones. But yes, militias also sell drugs, illicit drugs, just as not in the same way. It's not so important to militias' income as it is to drug factions. But yes, they do take part in many illicit markets like the sales of stolen goods and stolen cars and, uh, and cargo theft. They are involved in other criminal activities as well. But what is really the focus in our paper is what we can assess by the, the data on illicit activities so that we can assess how some regulatory agencies from the government may address the issue of militias without necessarily confronting an open armed conflict. So they can, using some regulatory policies, they might impose some income losses to groups that have been profiting not only from illicit activities, but also from illicit activities, and they are basically making the life of the urban poor in Rio de more expensive.
1: Thank you for the explanation, Carolina. I think this is a perfect segue actually to Felipe Fernandez's piece because it looks very closely at the protection rackets organized by a variety of criminal actors in Colombia. Perhaps Felipe you want to take us to the store, the hardware store, this very small ethnographic site but through which you have uh, looked at a variety of these processes.
3: Yeah, I would say that my research is rather focused on how illicit groups interrupt and intersect in the circulation of commodities rather than the the production of urban spaces or infrastructures and materialities. Um, in my ethnography, I was working, during my field work, I was working at a hardware shop in the city of Buenaventura in Colombia, and I was primarily interested on water infrastructures and the repair practices and maintenance practices um, people have to do to their, to their houses and how they build storage systems, to store water, because their water supply is not regular. But at some point, I was realizing that extortion, that illicit group extorted the hardware shop and the owners of the shop. And in in the paper, I focus on how the circulation of very important commodities is interrupted by the extortion. Because as a response to this extortion, the hardware shop owners have to cope in different ways and they raise prices, for example, or some commodities are not available because the owners of the shops don't buy it because they don't have enough cash because they have to pay extortion. So rather than looking at how illicit economies or illicit groups produce or are like make cities, they also interrupt material uh, flows, or material arrangements, and they become part of the whole material processes in, the, in, a, in a city where water scarcity is, is a problem. Yes, and I use the term uh, parasite, coined by French philosopher Michel Serret, to explain how the material world of a city is full of parasites, of entities taking from others, And this is the case of illicit economies in in Latin America, specifically in Colombia and in the city of Buenaventura.
1: Thank you, Felipe. I think I'll give it back over to Frank.
0: Yes, so one common thread that runs through most of the papers in this special issue is definitely the peripheral areas of of cities. Carolina's paper, definitely, and Felipe's paper, but it also links to Lirio Gutierrez's paper, on Medellin, and especially how people need to cope with such a situation of extortion of violent actors, actually, let's say, taxing for protection, although they have not been invited to do so, let's say it in a very careful way. So Lirio's paper is a lot on those coping strategies and violences that especially women experience in such a situation of peripheral urban areas. Lirio would you would you like to introduce us a little bit more in detail about your paper what it
4: is on? Thank you for for having me here on this podcast and Uh, It's a project um, that's about women community leaders in Medellin, Colombia. Medellin is the second city, the second largest city of Colombia. And I was uh, surprised when I arrived at that city. I'm not originally from Colombia. I'm from Honduras. But I've been living in Colombia for many, many years. And I arrived at Colombia, at Medellin specifically, around almost 10 years ago. And I was surprised by the amount of women's organizations that are present in that city, on, and they move on very different levels, like on a municipal level, some of them are very articulated transnationally. And some of them are really at the grass grassroots, you know, like in the neighborhood level. And this paper, it focuses on these women who are just really focused on trying to just do their community work at the level of the neighborhood. And these neighborhoods specifically are controlled largely by gangs. Locally, these gangs are known as combos in Medellin. And well, Medellin has, there is a variety of armed actors in the city and there's a long history about that. I won't get into that, but combos are like, criminal groups on a very local level and you know they some of them have like connections with larger criminal groups in the city and in Colombia and so yes these actors have considerable territorial control they control a lot of resources i mean it's not only drugs i mean drugs they don't even get their money from drugs it's mainly controlling what foods are being sold in the neighborhood for instance uh how the decision on a local planning project because in Colombia there are two main instruments for planning urban planning and that's one of them is it's called the local neighborhood planning project and this is decided by the community and of course community leaders participate and women are in that mostly they fight to be on that board but also these armed actors these combos criminal groups also have a say in this so They have considerable control over the life, daily lives of people, and they use in many cases violent methods to, you know, like dominate these neighborhoods. And these women, these women community leaders, what struck us was that they they really well, first they, they stay. I mean they have no intention of leaving the neighborhood. They want to stay and they will fight to stay in that neighborhood and continue you know, they just try to do their community work so we wanted to understand how, what do they do exactly to stay in these? You know, how do they interact with these combos who are present constantly? You know, they have to deal with them almost on an everyday basis. What are their interactions? What are their strategies to cope with these criminal groups? And what we noticed is that they have a very complex and ambiguous relationship with the combos because they've known them for Years In one moment of their lives, they probably babysat them, or they were part of their community projects, or their children are recruited, and they become combos. And so they, ha- they have this very ambiguous, complex relationship. Some of the strategies that I talk about in the paper, there are a lot more, but in the, f- in the paper, we've discussed three strategies, which is negotiating with these criminal groups, avoiding confrontation with these criminal groups, or confronting them. And that's basically what we discuss. And what we notice is that what this shows is women's capability, you know, to respond of these situations of violence that not necessarily means that they want to transform gender relations. I mean, they're not really on a discourse of women's rights, gender equality. That's not really what they want to do, they just want to do their community work.
1: Thank you for that. And I think with this, we're going to wrap up. And I think one
4: of the fascinating
1: things that the different articles in this special issue is the way in which licit or illicit materialities are part of people's daily lives, but also the flows of objects, infrastructures across spaces, and their interception, but also their occupation by actors that are considered illicit, whether that is that they are considered illicit by the state, or whether that is that they are considered illicit by the people who are living in the communities, Also, let's say this issue of what is the vantage point, right? And what is the relation with the state? In what ways is the state facilitating perhaps this interception? What ways is the state unable to do it? Or in what ways is it perhaps the state that is doing it? So I think this raises really interesting questions um, looking bottom up at how community residents um, are implicated and involved in this in the circulation of these materialities and their political ramifications. At the same time, it, it, of course, also makes us have to look at the powerful, right? It makes us turn our eye also to in what ways are these kind of facilitations occurring? Are they entirely involuntary? Why are there not more state interventions, perhaps, where community residents would want them to be? uh, While at the same time, a lot of community residents across these cities know that if they call for state intervention, that has a lot of implications for the lives of those that are close to them, even if it's in this fraught relationship, as, as Lidio has beautifully explained. So I think we have gotten to know a lot about the different strategies, ways in which people cope with these ebbs and flows, uh, these interceptions, uh, these occupations. And I thank you all for having shared with us. Back to you, Frank, what is, what is is gonna be the continuation of Elicities?
0: The work of the Illicities Research Network continues actually. So please expect another email from our side We hope to have you over again to Amsterdam to continue this fascinating conversation. So with that, let me all thank you for being here with us today. That's it for this episode of Crime Beyond Borders. I invite you all to take a look at the special issue illicities on JIED's webpage and to check out all the papers of the authors here present today with us, but also the many others that you can find there. Crime Beyond Borders from JIED and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime will be back soon with another episode. I'm Frank
4: Müller. Thanks for listening.